Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with a peer and leave us a review. For this seventh episode, this final episode in our launch series, we have Coley Andrews and Mitch Cohen, partners at Pacific Lake and Trilogy, respectively. Both have been around for quite a long time in the search community, have a lot to share. And I think are a great recap and summation episode for a series that talked all about industry search, starting up a search, working with investors, working with the seller, first 100 days, kind of becoming a CEO. And now that you're a CEO, here's a great conversation with two longtime investors on kind of guiding spirits and principles for how they approach not just search, but mentorship and um, so much beyond that. So this is a good kind of penultimate episode, actually ultimate episode for for the series that I think went really well. Yeah, this is Aaron. Hey, I'd like to first, Alex, you know, thank you for doing this with us. Um, really proud of this set of conversations. And and Chris, thank you too. And just the the Pacific Lake team, this was this was really fun um, to collaborate on. I think you're right, Alex. There, you know, one thing that made the series, I, I hope, useful is the really tactical takeaways from a lot of these episodes. And I think there are tactical takeaways from this episode as well, a lot in there about uh, governance and working with boards and preparing for a first board meeting. You know, but I think Coley and Mitch also step back a bit and you're seeing the thoughts and perspectives of um, two leaders in this community, what matters to them, the values um, that matter to them. You know, and I'll just say for my part, uh, part of the pleasure is just, um, just getting to hear them talk about that. I, I um, interact with Mitch, of course, every day, but it, it's really a pleasure for me to hear Coley's, you know, perspective on, uh, you know, the founding of uh, his firm, what he thinks, what's important to him on a day-to-day basis, how he thinks about being a leader in this community. That's a privilege and was just a, a fun part for me about listening to the episode. Yeah, I'll echo a lot of those things. You know, first and foremost, Alex, thanks for doing this. We, we had a lot of fun doing it too and really enjoyed listening and and participating and being part of hopefully building some content that helps a lot of potential searchers evaluate this and decide what they want to do and hopefully do it more effectively. And that's, that was the goal of launch. I really enjoyed the episode as well. And very similar to Aaron, you know, I talked to Coley about this stuff a lot, but I also got a chance to hear some things from Mitch's perspective and, and where he came to this from and how different he sees it sometimes from his experience at a bigger, more traditional private equity firm and places where you, you know, you have to be more hands-on and you have to be more collaborative and you have to do things that are different. And I think it, it really did embody some of the spirit of search, which is, I think, a special thing that once you're inside it, you kind of know, but maybe if you're outside it or learning about it, it's it's new and sounds different. So I think that was great. I, I also just loved a lot of the commentary on, you know, mentorship and how this, how personal or how human the situation is, right? The idea that I love Coley talking about a mentor as a 12 year old little leaguer and the idea that like part of our job is not, you know, just to give business advice, but to lift people and have them be confident and have them get through imposter syndrome and figure out, you know, this journey of search inside their, inside their actual life. I just, I thought it was great. So I'm, I'm enjoyed the episode. I enjoyed the series and I'm, I hope the rest of the group that's listening to this really does enjoy it too. Well, this is the seventh and final episode of this year's launch series. We started off with discussions on industry research and search startup, and then working with investors and sellers and going through a deal process on the legal side, first hundred days. And now the final episode, the ultimate episode in this series with you both today, I'm really looking forward to a discussion on kind of the evolution of search funds, mentorship, investing, and all these other different topics we can dive into. I think a helpful place to start would be your both of your personal interests in search. Why did you choose this space as something you wanted to build part of your career around? Mitch, perhaps we can start with you. And you've got a pretty unique background yourself. So I'd, I'd love to dive into it for a little bit. Yeah, no, of course. And thank you, Alex, for allowing Coley and I to speak with you today. So I came, I'm actually a little newer to the space than Coley is, and I've been involved in search fund investing for about 10 years now. 
after spending a little over 20 years as a partner in a large private equity firm. And so when I retired from the firm, I'd always been familiar with search. Interestingly enough, Irv Grossbeck, who as everybody would probably acknowledge as was one of the fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers of the search fund space. I, I sat on two boards with Irv over time when I was a partner in a private equity firm. So I I knew Irv. I knew about search funds. I also knew a lot of the participants in the space. Um, I'd, I'd heard of Coley. Coley and I hadn't spent time together, but I knew guys like Irv and the Assurian guys and Peter Kelly and Joe Niehaus and the Housatonic guys. And when I retired from my career at private, in large-scale private equity, I said, wow, these are some pretty smart guys out there. If they're spending time and they're really interested in this space, there must be something there. And so I was lucky enough, and I had a history with a group of guys, trilogy guys up in, up in Bellevue. I'd worked with them on a number of things before, and they were also, interestingly enough, having conversations with Coley and Jim about a number of search fund opportunities. I thought it would be really interesting. And so I jumped in with both feet. That was probably about 10 or 11 years ago. And I've been spending some serious time as an investor, board member, mentor in the search fund space since then. So I didn't know anything about a search fund and never heard of it until I was fortunate to get to business school. And I remember I was telling somebody, that'd be really cool if I could, if I could buy and run a company. And this, this guy was a year ahead of me in business school. And he said, oh, you got to go meet these two people that we've invested in that bought and ran a company and they're doing a great job. And that was my foray foray into the search fund world. I spent my summer interning for the two of them in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and came back to California saying, this is the world I definitely want to be a part of. However, the origin story for Pacific Lake was very much a last minute audible. I was headed down the search fund path. I was going to buy and run my own company. And my first investor was Jim Southern, who was the guy you went to talk to back in the day first to invest in your search. And a couple of weeks later, he emailed me and said, have you finished raising your search fund? I said, no, what's on your mind? He's like, well, I have another idea. And that idea turned out to be what it's now, Pacific Lake. And he and Irv Grossbeck had been talking about when would be the right time to start a firm to solely focus on the search fund model. Jim's track record was you know, quite extensive as an operator and investor and an investor. And the model had been around long enough that we thought there was an opportunity to really build, build a firm focused on exclusively backing entrepreneurs and the companies that they acquire and ultimately run. So I, I pivoted at the last minute right before graduation to, to start with now Pacific Lake. And that was coming up on 15 years ago. And you know, it's been quite, quite a great journey. Coley, what brings you the most fulfillment from your work in search? Yeah, it connects to a topic I'm sure we'll get into a lot in this, this call, but it's the, the opportunity to have impact. And, you know, it's a lot of different places along the journey of a search fund entrepreneur where perhaps as an investor and an advisor, you have a, an opportunity to have a little bit of impact and getting that feedback loop when someone, you know, does buy a company or someone doesn't buy a company that they in hindsight are glad they didn't buy or someone gets into the CEO seat and said, this is everything I ever dreamed of and more. And thank you for helping me to get here. And somebody says, man, this was like a really tough stretch, but I felt like you had my back through all of it. And I could have gotten here without you. Like those are the moments and the letters and the emails and the pictures that have really stood out to me over the last 15 years. And you'll be able to have that impact is really special. And then couple that with the opportunity to build an organization of people focused on doing that on a day-to-day basis is, you know, a double whammy to the positive to be able to have those two things. So for me, that's the most fulfilling part of, of being in this world. The impact you can potentially have on entrepreneurs and the opportunity to build an organization and a team focused on doing that. Mitch, how about you for fulfillment and search? Does it come from similar things? I'd be curious also comparing to your days in private equity where where the source of fulfillment has has shifted perhaps. Yeah, I would agree with Coley about impact and working with these entrepreneurs. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. People look at us and say, how can you back these first-time entrepreneurs? They've never done it before. You're entrusting them to run a business they've never run before, you know, and then they've never run it. And yes, it's it is a risk and it requires a huge amount of time, but it is energizing and it is actually really exciting to back people who have never done something before. 
because they bring a new perspective to it. Now, oftentimes they come up with crazy ideas and board members and investors need to kind of hone them in and rein them in, but we don't want to rein them in too much. And that is so exciting. And it's quite frankly, a very different approach than perhaps larger scale private equity, where there's a playbook. There's, yes, there is a playbook for how you set up a search and there's a playbook for what you need to do maybe in your first hundred days as a new CEO. But to Coley's point about impact, these searcher CEOs can have true impact. They can pull levers that have immediate response and immediate impact on the performance of the businesses. And having somebody come in wide-eyed, very optimistic to take over a company is just super, super energizing for all of us who are in this space. I would say that, you know, when you think about it compared to larger scale private equity, you know, couple of things. First is most large-scale private equity investors don't actually do the work. They hire third-party consultants to come in and do the work. They hire Bain, they hire McKinsey to go in there and do the, you know, workforce optimization study or this or that. They're spending a lot more time on capital structure and financial engineering and the like. Not to say that they're not involved, you know, in helping, quote, run the company. But I would say that we, along with our entrepreneurs, are really down in the weeds, pulling levers to actually drive performance and outcomes. And that's just super exciting. Yeah, I agree. And the it's funny you, you talk about the excitement backing CEOs who haven't done it before. It's, it's funny that, that can you can back a CEO who hasn't been a CEO before and it works out, whereas you probably wouldn't do that with hiring a CTO or head of sales, like you would, or you would never hire a CFO who didn't come from accounting or didn't have a very strong understanding. Whereas with CEO, we can, we can find these, these people who are excited about running companies and they can often do very well. It's a, it's an interesting dynamic. You both mentioned mentorship as being a really impactful place for fulfillment for you. I'd, I'd be curious where, where mentors had an impact on you? Where does that come from? Well, it goes all the way back to Little League Baseball, where I definitely remember my coach, Jim Johnson, who, for whatever reason, you know, you always look back in life and there's a few people that stand out. And, and Jim Johnson was definitely cheering for me to get my first home run as a 12-year-old more than anybody else, which I, which I remember and really appreciated. And bring that to the present day, you know, when I was starting Pacific Lake, I was fortunate to spend time with Jim Southern and, and Irv Grossbeck. And... You know, they have shaped certainly Pacific Lake. They have shaped me. They have shaped how I try to engage with entrepreneurs and Pacific Lake team members. And it's been wonderful. It's been a wonderful professional development opportunity for me. It's been a personal development and growth experience for me, having a, a two gentlemen like that uh, in my corner. And that's what makes, I think, the search fund model so great. There is a, a, a pay it forward, pass it down mentality that draws people into the community. And I certainly feel that fortunate to have had a lot of exposure to the two of them and many others in the space, by the way, that have certainly shaped and influenced me as well. And the opportunity to, to, to pass that down where an entrepreneur is interested in hearing. And that doesn't mean that Mitch and I know everything and it's the end all be all. It, it's not that at all. It's actually quite the opposite of that. It's actually wanting to engage with the entrepreneur, seeking to understand, asking questions, getting their feedback, and having a two-way relationship on a dimension where the entrepreneur also values what we have to say and some of the experience that we can bring to bear and creatively trying to, to come up with solutions and new ideas. And you know, in my experience now, when you do that first from a business relationship standpoint, there's a wonderful opportunity for personal relationships to blossom out of that mentorship and, and connection. And that's certainly the way I feel today with many, you know, age peers of mine now who did search funds and are successfully investing now alongside all of us. And we have great personal and professional relationships that are multidimensional. And I think that all stems from, you know, one, the, the community that attracts people in that are seeking mentorship or either to receive it or to give it. But two, then are, are excited to, to be active participants in that, you know, multidimensional relationship with the next generation of entrepreneurs. Alex, I would, if I were a young person who was looking at search or searching or a search CEO now, I think you have to remember to 
reach out and ask for mentorship. For You have a board, for example, that's focused a lot on day-to-day stuff in your business, strategic stuff. But as Coley pointed out, a big part of mentorship is also the stuff outside of the office. It's the personal stuff that you need help with. And you need to feel super comfortable because there's this is a community. And, and I want to go back a little bit. I'll circle back to kind of why I'm so excited about this community and investing in search funds. This is a community that I have never seen another community that is so generous with its time. And you will rarely get a situation where a younger person will ask an older person, would you mind having a cup of coffee with me and talking to me about your adventure or talking about how you deal with work-life balance or how do you deal with those kinds of things? And I'm concerned that we tend to just focus on the details and KPIs and we focus on the next strategic plan and the budget and comp and this and that. And that I would really encourage searchers and CEOs to leverage Coley, leverage Jim, leverage me, Aaron, Scott, the rest of us about what it's like to be a leader, what it's like to have a life outside of the office. All that stuff is just as important as catching your KPIs. And But you need to ask. You need to ask and reach out and take advantage of those resources and those opportunities that there are out there in the space. So you've both built really interesting organizations investing in search. How do you build an organization around mentorship? It's such a key ingredient in search investing, but how do you create a culture of mentorship within your teams and bring on the right people and encourage the right activities and the right, you know, taking that call? How do you how do you build a team that has that focus, that shared desire? Yeah, I can take a crack at that out of the gate. I, I think it starts absolutely number one with culture. There's just no substitution for that. And culture starts with people. You know, this is a different job. It takes a long time. It's a lot of work. You're connecting with a lot of different people out there. And those characteristics or ingredients, along with many more, I think screen a lot of people out from even being interested in being a part of this ecosystem. But what that leaves behind is a lot of interesting people that are drawn to all those ingredients. And that's a big part of what we look for when we're looking for new people to join the Pacific Lake team. Like They've got to have energy to want to learn and be intellectually curious, to engage and connect and be relationships focused. And a lot of people, that's not their, what they want to do. They want to, they want to work. They want to crank. They want to analyze. They want to execute. And that's great. And those people have lots of roles out there in the world where they'll be very successful. I think to be a part of an organization like Pacific Lake or Trilogy or others out there that operates in this you know, very unique ecosystem, you have to be excited about the intangibles of connecting with people, continuous learning and discovery, and a willingness to be on that perpetual education train yourself so that you can also then provide some of those lessons to the next generation of folks coming behind you. Because guess what? Like, there are a lot of things that searchers need to learn every year as a new wave of them come out. There are a lot of mistakes that we all repeat. You're going to make different mistakes than I'm going to make and that Mitch is going to make. But guess what? I think there are 15 or 20 of them that everybody's going to make three or four of them. And if you can be excited about understanding that and learning that, then you can build a team and build infrastructure and build content that can organize and categorize and then disseminate that content to generations of entrepreneurs. And But it all comes back to people that get excited about that, that process. And I think it's a small sliver of folks, but just like in the search engine community, that self-selection actually creates a very powerful web of people who do want to be a part of it. Yeah, and I would I would add on a couple of skills that it's just super important to have as part of the teams that we're all building is is we have to have people that are good listeners. We have to have team members that are willing to listen and and digest what the searchers are and and the CEOs are saying. And you also need to have people who have empathy, to be honest, who have the ability to put themselves in the shoes of the and the struggles that the searchers and the CEOs are going through. And if they don't have those skills, it is going to be a really difficult time building those relationships, as Coley talked about. You also just have to have people who have a passion 
to work with smaller businesses. It is a really different, and it was one of the big transitions I had, and I know Coley spent time at Golden Gate, a large private equity firm as well. The issues and the challenges that we deal with in these smaller businesses are very different than the challenges and issues that we share on these larger companies. And unless you have a willingness to roll up your sleeves and deal with stuff that many people would think of as mundane or or immaterial, but they're very, very important for these small businesses. If you don't have that interest or that willingness to do this, this is probably the wrong space for you to be involved, either as a searcher or as an investor. Mitch, I, I really liked your, the use of the word empathy and it triggered a story for me. So just the other day, we had a handful of recently acquired CEOs in our office. And I was, I was chatting with a, a woman who's a CEO who's about 14 months into being the CEO. And she's got a 13-month-old first child as well. And, you know, that is pretty unbelievable to have searched, buy a business, have a child, and move somewhere new in the country all within a six-month period. And, you know, that is a huge tax to pull all those things off on this individual. And she was excited and there and all in. And I think it's important for us to be able to see that, hey, this is a a journey in life. And there's a lot of things that are going on at this stage of life beyond just trying to get the job done. And I think that's cool. And it deepens the relationships and understanding what people have going on in their lives and an appreciation for that. So that, yes, like things take time in our world professionally to develop, to learn, for the businesses to progress. And all that's occurring in parallel which is with, you know, usually sort of a lot of family evolution and, and location changes that, by the way, when you're in a different world of private equity or investing, you're hiring someone in their 50s or their 60s or their late 40s. And, you know, they're just in a totally different phase of life where it's, you know, it's crank time for their job at that point. Well, guess what? The search for entrepreneurs crank job on their job, crank time on their job, crank time on their family, crank time on the, getting their life set up. I mean, it's a whole mosaic of activity going on. And if you're excited about that, that's great. But you have to have some empathy and some patience too, because it's a lot. And you also, and just to add on, as investors, which Coley and I are, and a whole group of people, you actually have to really appreciate how lonely a job this is for a searcher and a search fund, or a, a search CEO. You know, in larger companies, they typically would have peers, they might have other things. And this can be a very lonely experience for someone, even during the search phase. And these are typically people who have been surrounded in most of their lives by great, talented people, whether it was in their business school class or whether it was where they worked before. And now they're parachuted and, and thrown into the deep end of the pond. And oftentimes it is a very lonely, there's not a lot of peers, et cetera. And if we as investors don't appreciate that that's what they're going through, it makes it really challenging to help. And it makes it super, super challenging for those people as well. Are there any points in time in the last 10 years I've, either of you can remember that felt like an inflection point for your own patience and empathy with searchers and first-time CEOs? Coley, I see you're nodding. We're on Zoom, guys, so we can see each other. Coley, you're nodding, so I'll let well, you start. There's not any one point, that's for sure. There, there are multiple points. Well, I, mean, I just gave a story of the appreciation for you know the family evolution that's going on at the same time as buying and running a company. I mean, that's very recent, but that's happened many, many times over the course of, uh, of search, my search experience. There's another situation that comes to mind where there were two really talented CEOs who had bought their company. They were running it and they were about three years in and they were just kind of bored. The business was doing really well and they were like, hey, this is good, but it it wasn't on a trajectory to be great at that time. And and we had conversations about, well, should one of them split out and go do something else or what have you? And I remember thinking to myself, well, that wasn't the way we... The deal, like I thought it was all in on this, et cetera. And in hindsight, that was just immaturity on my part. You know, it was a very reasonable position for them to take, which is, hey, we've been working on this thing. It's going well, but we think we can do more. We think we can do something bigger, more expansive. 
And that was a cool moment. And what, where we came to was they decided to still stay in the business they were in. They doubled down and they, and they took the business from, which was probably a solid three to four X at that point and tripled it at that, from that point forward over the next couple of years. And it really gave me a profound appreciation for, Hey, like, you know, listen to the conductor, right? The conductor's got something going on and our job is to listen and process and absorb and understand what the motivations are there. And, and what it was, was like, we just want to be better. We want to do something different. We want to just, we think we can do something more. And how do we find a way to do that? And it started as, well, maybe we need to do something else. Well, where it got to was like, no, actually, we think we can do more here. And they did that and, and, and far exceeded expectations in that company above and well above me all what anybody ever thought it would be. And that was a really good lesson for me on like, just always have the ears open, always have the aperture open and really seek to understand what's going on behind the scenes. And, and if you do that, you can, you can be a supportive and trusted partner and you can really, you know, encourage and support entrepreneurs to go follow where they really think they need to go. And sometimes it might be a little different than what you thought out of the gate, but trusting that instinct and that judgment after some good listening and Socratic investigation, you know, can be a really powerful combination. Yeah. And, and Alex, I know we're going to talk a little bit about how investors can be good directors. And so we'll, we'll save a little for that. But to Coley's point about listening, I mean, the, the, some of the, and I wouldn't say there's one big thing like the epiphany aha moment, but I'll, I'll flip Coley said to another, which is I realized in a couple of situations where I probably wasn't listening well enough and I wasn't taking the cues well enough to really feel that the CEO was struggling and really needed help and was afraid or hesitant to reach out and really have that conversation to say, hey guys, I am struggling, I need help. And we probably let situations go on too long where we as investors or other people could have come in and helped. And so we didn't optimize those situations. And so, you know, it made me appreciate that I have to, we as investors, directors have to pick up on signals. These searchers, the, the common theme among searchers is they are all super, super accomplished. And very few of any of them have had a lot of failures in their life. And so when it comes and there, it's inevitable that they will fail at something once they, once they take over a company or even during their search process. And it is a challenging thing for people to, to reach out and talk about how they're having problems. But that's what, that's what we are here to help to do. We have a lot of pattern recognition. We've been doing this for a while. And that's, and I realized that sometimes if we listen well enough, we'll pick that up and we may have to inject ourselves in more because some searchers or CEOs may be hesitant to reach out to us. Compared to private equity and other types of, this is hands-on guerrilla warfare. And it oftentimes, and we're going to talk about balance between when it's right for Coley and me and others to dig in and when it's less, it's right to teach them how to fish and let them have their space. But there are times where we really do need to dig in and, and, and help these people and help these people. And we're willing to do, and we're willing to do that. And we've built going back to your teams, we've built teams that hopefully have the right people to be able to do this and, and, and make better outcomes for everybody. Yeah, Mitch, picking up on that thread on noticing that a couple of CEOs were struggling. I, I think there's a common theme here that is just part of the structure of the search fund model. And the theme is the imposter syndrome, which is I'm 30 or 31 years old. I'm now the CEO of this company. I better know what I'm doing. And if I don't, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And I intentionally bring that up because I believe it's real. It's a powerful feeling. Uh, I believe it can stand in the way of open communication. I think it's incumbent on those that are involved on the investor side or on boards to be aware of that and to find ways to break that down and create a trusting, safe environment for the CEO to talk about the things that are concerning to her or him. And I think it's okay for the entrepreneurs and the CEOs out there to know that that's a very common feeling. They're in the same boat with everybody else out there. And many of us on the investor and board side understand that that's real. 
And it's okay to not know what to do. It's okay to not know how to figure this out. And that's part of what, again, back to earlier part of the conversation, makes this a really cool job is that you can help problem solve collectively and collaboratively. So I, I would wish for anyone who ends up listening to this that the imposter syndrome sticks in their mind regardless of what role they play in the, in the community because we can all find ways to break that down. Mentorship is a really big role as an investor, but also a, a board member. How do you translate mentorship as a board member? Is it, in, in what ways is it different from being an investor, not on a CEO's board? Well, I think, well, and by the way, I think that is something of kind of, if you had to put a list of kind of tactical things, I do think that once one buys a company and they create their board, and let's assume it was me and Coley and one other person on your board, I do tend to think that CEOs lean entirely on those three people. And there are still 10 or 12 or 15 other investors who are interested and willing to get involved. Obviously, the board members are the first point of contact, but I do think that searchers over time or CEOs tend to forget or they're busy but they build, need to continue to build relationships with their other investors, particularly in areas, you know, they spend a lot of time with all of these investors, built relationships with them during their search phase. And for them not to still take advantage of some mentorship opportunities from some of their investors who may not be on the board is just a big, it's, it's a footfall. It's a, it's a waste of potential resources there. And so we spend, even on companies where we're not on the board, a trilogy representative on the board, and as the case with the PL guys, we are still available and, and more than willing to help out on, on all kinds of situations, particularly around you know per, 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 professional and personal development stuff. You just have to ask. Like, let's, I go back to, we're not mind readers. And so if you're struggling with something and you really want help, you pick up the phone, you've got people who have serious vested reasons for wanting to help you succeed. Not only because you're a good person, but they are investors in your deal and they want you to succeed. So don't be shy. So a couple of things that come to mind for me is uh, being a director and what that means from a mentorship perspective. The, the two things that come to mind are modeling and intentionality. So I think one way you can you can be a mentor as a director is model the behavior that you as a director would like to see replicated. And that it can be in how you communicate, how you ask questions, how you respond, how you listen. How you show up, how you show, how, how you, you show, show up. up. Prepared. Or, prepared. Right, are you prepared? Not. You know, are yeah. you co-creating solutions? Are you delivering directives? Right. I mean, think about it. We've all worked for bosses that told us what to do and didn't really care, just told us what to do. And sometimes that didn't go so well. Whereas those that sort of tried to have you be part of the process, or even if it was a directive said, Hey, well, like, what is it going to take for this to be successful? Or what's standing in the way of you being able to do this well? How can I support you? Those are the people that generally folks want to work for. And this isn't that dynamic because no one's working for anybody. So I think it works way better. When you model and show the way you want to be treated yourself, and then the CEO has an opportunity to learn and pull that down and incorporate that into his or her own style as a manager and a leader. The second part is intentionality, which is this is more, if you want it to be, than just showing up at a board meeting three or four times a year, right? There's being intentional and proactive about outreach in between meetings, about checking in even when there's not a specific business topic to talk about. Right. When you're driving home from work and just letting them know you're thinking about that person and their company and just want to say, Hey, and how you're doing or how's life as a new parent or how the move go or what have you. And, and I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, best in class on that department, but every now and then you try to try to lob in a call or something on that in that way. And, and that creates a connection and a space that then can facilitate the teaching and the learning and the mentoring when things get tough, because there's always going to be a curveball or two that, that people face. And I believe part of my role is in those moments to be the first, you know, port of call when that curveball gets thrown, like the first phone call that the entrepreneur wants to make, like, Hey, I, how do I deal with this? Like, I don't know what to do here. And if I, you know, it doesn't have to be me, but the investors generally, like, I think want to try to create that environment because if we can 
have that type of communication flow, then there can be teaching and learning. And in parallel, equally important, there can be avoiding big mistakes. And at the end of the day, I think that's what the CEO wants is how do I maximize my own probability to be successful? Best way to do that is to flow communication, but it's incumbent on the investors to create the space for that. And it's incumbent on the CEOs to ask for it. So when the board is set up for the first time, and this is a, a CEO who most of the time hasn't run a company before and hasn't had a board before, as a board member, what kinds of things do you tell them or establish to make them more comfortable relying on you as a resource and, and mentor to them? Yeah, I, I, no, to kick that off, and I know Mitch has a bunch of thoughts on this as well. I really think setting expectations very clearly up front is super important. So, for example, hey, Alex, congrats. You just bought your business, like, yada, yada, yada. Let's have a call a month before the first board meeting. Let's just kind of have a discussion around what this could look like. And that could be very specific, like, hey, like, you should call me when something like this happens. Or you should ask these questions. And or, I know that you probably don't know what this means or might not know what that means. Like, that's all okay, right? And same thing that are on the list of like norms and expectations for, you know, what a board meeting experience is supposed to be like. And it's not just the meeting. It's the conversation in advance of the meeting. It's about understanding what type of information is important and, and urgent versus not important or not urgent and how you incorporate that into the, the discussion flow. So it's, it's the work around the, the specific of the meetings or being a director that I think really is the, is the key work that creates the environment that can lead to a high functioning experience for all involved. But it, it takes setting expectations up front. It takes being clear around communication um, so that the entrepreneur is not left guessing. Like that's not fair. Like it's their first rodeo. It's not mentioned by his first rodeo. So if we're not delivering that for them, then we failed them. And that's unacceptable. Yeah, I like to tell the story and it, it kind of drives it home is actually one of the first search fund boards I sat on, we're getting ready to have the board meeting. There are three of us on the board and I get a call about three weeks before the first board meeting and the new CEO called and said, Mitch, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but I've actually never been to a board meeting. I don't, I don't know what happens at board meetings. Um, and I think we oftentimes, you know, or many people take for granted that like, how are they supposed to know? They, you know, many of these people, they may have been a participant in a board meeting. They may have, you know, sat in a board meeting. But for most of these people, they never have been involved in setting an agenda for a board meeting or setting what the goals for the board meeting should be or what the materials should look like. They probably, in many of their roles, they help gather information that people used at board meetings, but they never actually were in charge of that. And I think to Coley's point is, I think it's incumbent upon the board to set expectations on what a, you know, how the board is going to function and work with the CEO. And I think it's also important for the CEO to make it clear as to what they really, what they expect from their board, what they think they need the most help on. And so it needs to be conversations very early. And, you know, you're going to have some footfalls and you're going to have some missteps and we're the first board meeting most likely will be a, a disaster because it won't accomplish what anybody wants to, but that's okay as long as it's a path to learning. I also think that it's important for the board members. Each one of us has our very own styles. I, I operate a little bit. Actually, Coley and I are pretty similar a lot, and we have a lot of similarities the way we work in board meetings. We've been on boards together. But a lot of board meetings have different approaches to board meetings themselves in different styles. Some are rougher, some are more direct, some are softer, some are want more detail, some want less detail, et cetera. And I do think it's super important for the board outside of the entrepreneur to kind of set some ground rules as to how they as a board are going to interact with the CEO. It, it's super confusing for a first time CEO to get different messages from board members as to how, you know, what a board member, what a board meeting should do. So I think it's important for the board members to have, to be synced up on how they want the interaction to be with the board, with the CEO. And that's, that's just planning. That's just getting off to the right start and making sure you're being really, as Coley said, kind of intentional about how these actions are all set up. 
yeah, that time, Alex, you put in at the front end, you know, having a couple extra meetings and do that is going to play, pay significant rewards down the line when you have a very functioning board going forward. And you're actually able to, you know, you got to look for the prize. The prize is, you know, is making progress and giving the, getting the impact, the input or getting the information that we need as board members to be helpful. But the bigger thing is to be able to support and help the CEO get to his and the company's goals. And you got to put that, you got to put that groundwork, sorry, you got to put that groundwork in at the beginning and plant those seeds really early to be able to have that successful relationship. So I've got a story that popped as you were talking about that, Mitch, which I think is great. So one of our first companies we invested in it's a company called Little Sprouts. It was run by an entrepreneur named Mark Anderegg. And in that business, you have, it's a, it's a for-profit daycare company. And you have certain regulations on how many teachers you have to have in the classroom based on the number of students you have. But the number of students can vary every hour just based on kids coming in and out based on the parent's schedule. And so we were trying to figure out how we could systematically collect some data around this. And I remember Jim Southern called Mark one day and said, hey, can I just come up to the office? It happened to be, you know, about an hour from Boston and spend some time with you just trying to work through this. And it was three hours that they spent one afternoon just together with pen and paper, trying to figure out the different ways that we could collect this information because we had to stay within regulatory compliance. And that's that's a, a lot of time on an afternoon on one topic, but they ended up solving the problem in a very simple way that didn't require some expensive software system to be implemented and some and teachers to have to fill out a whole bunch of forms, all this kind of stuff. And it was a really simple solution. And it taught, I think, Mark, he would say this, that, hey, sometimes there is a more simple path than something that might be more expensive or more complicated, but you got to put the time in to figure that out. And Jim did that with Mark, and he certainly did that with me early on as well. And so I really liked Mitch's comment that, you know, if you put the time in up front on all these different dimensions, that's mentorship, that's teaching. And more often than not, the people we're working with are really sponges to learn this type of stuff, and they'll take it and run. And then the time required thereafter will be, you know, less and focused on different issues. But, but up front, like, that's sometimes what it takes, and you got to show up. Yeah, you got it. And, and I'll, I'll do a pitch for Dave Dotson's, uh, book on his managerial book. The other thing too is, is we as a board are responsible for helping the, the CEO determine what their priorities are. And what is the key to Coley's point? What are the key factors? We know what are the KPIs we're really going to measure success on? And what are the two or three or one thing that we're going to use to drive that organization? And to be honest, we should start every meeting making sure that we talk about what that one thing is and everything we do should be focused around that. But it's not clear in some of these situations. Some are easy. It's very obvious as to what that key thing is going to be. But in some of these companies that we're buying, it there's a hundred different things we can do and we've got to figure out how to prioritize that. And that's how we can mentor and, and, and help the CEO as far as determining how they should best spend their time, best spend their capital on things that are going to have the most amount of impact at the end of the day. You've both been on the the boards with some really accomplished CEOs. What do some of the highest performing CEOs in your experience do with their boards? How do they manage board meetings, communicate? Are there, are there any takeaways from favorite CEOs of yours for new CEOs to start adopting? Yeah, let me give a couple, I, just a couple of, you know, miscellaneous. And by the way, some of this is comes from not necessarily search fund CEOs, but all the boards I sat on before I got involved in the CEOs is that we should assume, and, and you should assume as a CEO, and goes back to your showing up as a board member, you should assume that your board members read all the material <laughs> that was sent to them. And board meetings shouldn't be about regurgitation of facts that you could easily have sent in a memo to me that I can read at my leisure on the airplane coming to the meeting. We should make these discussions generative, but you also have to give me two things. You have to give me the questions that you want to have answered, right? And so 
And you have to give me enough information so that I can give you some real feedback. And so board CEOs who work with their boards in that way, which is here's the data and here's what the questions that we're wrestling with are. And you can give that to me in advance and we can use these forums as those generative discussions that tend to be the companies that have succeeded more. And there are a few great examples of CEOs that I've worked with before who are just masters at that. Yeah, one example that comes to mind for me is a guy named Nick Mansour, who's the CEO of Arizona College of Nursing. He, he does an amazing job of writing up a board memo, memo that's written in Microsoft Word, but has plenty of data that's imported into it. And he always opens up with a handful of questions that he wants to address in the meeting. And usually we're, he has an individual conversation with every director within a week before the meeting to talk about the one or two things that are really the most important things to cover in the meeting. So it's not a readout. It's not a slide by slide, you know, data dump. It's actually, to use Mitch's phrase, a generative discussion around what are the key things that he really would like help and support on here going forward. And that's not the norm out of the gate. And to be fair, Nick's been doing this a long time now. So he's got an experience curve that's come up. But that is a great model that the sooner the you know younger CEOs can get to a place where they recognize it's not a data dump. I can share the information that's important to understand the data because we all need to understand the financials and sales and what's working and what's not. But then use that as a springboard to really talk about what are the things that are standing in the way of the company achieving its goals in the near term and the intermediate term, or what are the things we need to do differently to be looking over the horizon one, two, three years from now to make sure that we're successful. I'm not saying necessarily that's appropriate in the first six months of running a company, but you know, within 12-ish plus or so months of running it, assuming things are on track, like that's where you want to be. And there are a lot more great examples of folks that have done a really wonderful job of that. And that allows them when they get to years two, three, and four to really start working on the business and where they're going to take it versus staying working in the business and just kind of getting through the day. And that's a huge distinguishing factor between those that have, you know, good to great to phenomenal outcomes and those that just do okay. I think the other, another kind of, I call it tactic for lack of a better word is what happens after the board meeting is, you tend to get the CEOs, and I can imagine it's exhausting prepping for a board meeting. And when they get out of the board meeting, they say, great, got that board meeting off. Next board meeting a month, you know, a quarter from now, I can go back to work. And I, the follow-up out of a board meeting is super, super important. And I think we tend to, you know, what were the issues that we talked about? What were the action items? And keeping the board apprised as to what the plan is now coming out of the board meeting, we tend to have kind of a little bit of a vacuum and it's just natural. It's human nature. I got through this board meeting. I had to prep all this material, all this generative discussion. That's great. And then I'm just going to go back to work. <laughs> and we have to figure out as board members how to follow through and have that thread continue. So good tactic is the CEO going back to the board member after the board meeting say, here are my takeaways. Here are the action items that you guys laid out for me. And here's how I'm going to communicate progress against those between now and the next board meeting or the next time we convene. It's a good way to just keep that flow going from the peaks and valleys of a board meeting and then there's quiet and then there's board meeting and there's quiet. It's super hard for directors unless they're kind of kept up to date. And it doesn't mean daily calls. It doesn't mean weekly calls, et cetera. But those things that you want to flow through and that are super important, it's super hard for us to contribute if we're just talking about it every quarter. I like the that framework of asking, of having the key questions to ask your board that you both mentioned in, in various ways. As a CEO, what questions are what types of questions are most helpful to ask your board versus ones that maybe are more helpful for outside the board meeting, a quick phone call, text, what have you? Well, it's a wide range. A couple of things that come to mind is one, team and personnel. Right? I think that's an important conversation to be had usually within the group because 
especially for an early CEO, you probably won't develop high confidence in whether someone's great or not, unless it's so blatantly obvious, which usually it's not. But you can replay stories and observations and data points that then those of us that have been around the hoop a little bit longer can say, hmm, I've heard that before. That's concerning. Or no, that actually is exactly what you would expect at this point. So I think that's a really important topic that should be, maybe it's not every meeting, but certainly a couple of times a year. And I think you can get a lot of value from the experience on your board that can be drawn down through that, number one. Uh, number two, I think you know the CEOs are working so hard in the day-to-day of doing the job, um, stepping back and asking, hey, what am I missing here? Or what am I not seeing? Or where do I, what do I need to do differently to get where I want to be, not in the next three to six months, but in a year or two from now, is also a really important discussion to have. And it's probably where CEOs would say they really get the most value from their board members, with the exception of maybe industry experience. I think that can be helpful to folks as well. But we're really talking here about the early first couple of years, first couple of innings of the search fund CEO's journey. And if they're not pulling up and, and, and asking those questions, then they're really not benefiting from the people they've chosen to surround themselves with. Because I do think that's where it can be really helpful. It's certainly been very helpful to me with some of my advisors where you know, they're looking a few years ahead and I, I can't even, you know, get to the end of the day. And it, it's changed the business of Pacific Lake because of those type of insights and observations that were, you know, multi-year, multi-decade type opportunities that I'm not sure I would have been able to see myself because I'm not expected to when I'm just trying to get the job done. And I think the same very much applies to, to first-time CEOs. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where I heard this, so I'm not going to take credit myself, but if but if you don't hire or think ahead of the curve, there's unlikely to be a curve. And so those are the kinds of important things that I think a board can really be helpful is because we're not in the weeds. And by the way, we shouldn't be in the weeds. I mean, we can get into the weeds if needed, if there's a crisis or an emergency, but that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're trusting that the CEO, we're giving them the tools to be able to solve those issues themselves. But where we can do is help facilitate and allow the CEO to take those windows of time where they can step up above the fray and think more about the forest than the trees and giving them some prompts about that. And I think it's super important and it should be a, I think it's important too. And Coley, we talked Coley and I talked about earlier is that these board meetings need to be safe spaces where the CEO feels very comfortable showing some vulnerability showing that they don't necessarily have that vision right now and maybe they do but that's where we can be that's where we can be super helpful is is on that front i i think the other thing and i and i completely agree with coley that one of the most important things we see that ceos struggle with and that they can lean on their boards a lot are hr related personnel related things you know you can learn about go to market in business school you can learn about you know technology, et cetera. But until you've actually been on the ground managing people, evaluating people, hiring people, unfortunately, in certain cases, firing people, creating an org chart of A people, not B people, but A people, how do you actually evaluate what an A person looks like? Those are the kinds of things that um, CEOs struggle with the most. And that's the stuff where having a partner like your board or others uh, can be super, super helpful with. Yeah, on the people side, I know that it's, it's common for a board member to be involved in the hiring process for perhaps a very senior leader, thinking of a, you know, Don Taylor might join an interview for a head of sales or someone like that. What, what are some ways like that, that a board member could be involved in a key hire? Well, I think, I think it starts with the job spec. Going all the way back to the very beginning is what are the skills and the role that we're trying to fill and making sure that we're thinking broad enough, we're thinking aggressive enough in terms of, you know, hiring a person that isn't going to be, it's thinking about what that job, it looks like a year from now or two years from now, as Coley kind of talked about, right? Versus let's hire somebody who knows how to do this task today because that's our pain point today. And I think 
you know, a CEO is so in the weeds and says, I've got this problem. I have to get my books balanced and closed by the end of the quarter and I need a new CFO. And I think we can be helpful in creating the specs that say, okay, that's table stakes. What do you really, what are the skills and what are the qualifications and what's the culture of the person that you want to bring in? And I think that's the first place is in the job spec. Yeah, building on that, I think a board member can be helpful in reviewing and grading resumes that come in in the candidate pool. I know that Jim Southern did this with many of our early CEOs to teach them how to, you know, what good looks like. I think participating with a CEO in an interview process, but where the director or someone like Don Taylor, you mentioned, that person leads the interview. And then the CEO is watching how that person conducts the interview. So again, it's you know teaching the fisherwoman or fisherwoman how to fish, not fishing for them. These are just like really specific tactical things that can bring the CEO up the development learning curve much faster. Um, and of course, there's always there's no substitution for just experience on you know something that you pick up in a conversation that doesn't feel good about a person's integrity or what have you. But really, I think this is about driving skill development and, and helping the CEOs come up that learning curve much faster. And if you seek to incorporate your directors in a very tactical way, as I just described, I think you can get that. You, you know, it is really hard. Like for a CEO who is not necessarily super technical, say the owner to hire to hire a CTO. I, how do they know what questions to even ask and what are their competency? So you bring it, you need to bring in a Scott from PL or Kevin Knipp from Trilogy or a bunch of other people. Those are the only like to actually participate in those interviews to really test their acumen and their skill set. You know, we have fractional CFOs out there. We're all financial people. You ever hunt a CFO like, and you're not as financially driven as a CEO. How do you expect it to know how to? gauge their qualifications. So get Coley on the phone. Coley can drill them with some questions, right? About, and you can come back as this guy doesn't actually really know financial modeling well. Those are the kinds of things that I think we can be helpful with, especially on, we don't need to do that for mid-level, but for C-suite level people, it's just super, super important. Yeah, you mentioned Scott. Scott and I talked about that briefly recently. And he remembers times hiring technical folks and working with, you know, a, a former CEO he worked with and how he'd come out of an interview and think, oh, that person's probably not a great fit. And the CEO is like, we are hiring that guy immediately. And so the that difference in experience level and knowing what to look for and what the, the true jobs to be done for a given role are really important and, and hard to understand as an early CEO. And, and I'll make one other comment. If it's a good candidate, they're going to want to meet with those people because they're going to want to make sure they're joining an organization with people who, like Don, who know sales or engaged in it. So it shouldn't be viewed as a burden. Those people are going to want to be impressed that this is the kind of people I'm going to be working with in this organization. You've both, of course, been investors for quite a while and many on many, many boards. What changes or challenges have you noticed from the search fund world in the last handful of years? Well, I, I would say it's a, it's a double-edged sword I, um, in that the growth of the community and the interest in search funds has been terrific. There are people who may not have incredibly talented young people who might not have ever thought about a search fund who have now read about it, learned about it. Maybe they, you know, have a friend who is in it who are now looking at this as a real opportunity for them. That's great. And I hope that continues. And there should be no cap on the number of great people that we're willing to absorb into the, the community. On the other hand, it does create real stress and pressure on our ability as investors to be good good partners, mentors, and all of that for those people. And I am hoping that we will have more people join the ecosystem from an investor standpoint and a board standpoint. And it's kind of our responsibility as well as investors to bring those people into our ecosystem 
so that we don't become out of balance, that we have not enough support for these new searchers. And I do feel, and Coley's taught, taught, talked a lot about this, is that stress that we're seeing now on people available to go on boards, how well they're trained to go on these boards. I think that is an interesting trend that we're seeing, and it's really escalated over the past several years. So that's one that I would point out, Coley. I don't know if you have any. Yeah, we operate that. in a community, but it's a decentralized existence. Yet the community has expanded quite substantially on all dimensions over the last 10 years. And with that, it means it's harder for training and development and culture and values to permeate, uh, especially absent intentionality. So I know that's one thing that many folks in the community are spending time on right now is, hey, in light of this growth that we've had, and more importantly, where it's going going forward, how can we be intentional about defining the values that we have in our community, which was done at the Stanford CEO conference recently? How can we be intentional about helping to train and develop the next generation of board members so that we have capacity and coverage going forward to support entrepreneurs, which we also talked about at the Stanford CEO conference. So, you know, the, the, the challenge we face is the market is going to continue to grow. It's, the industry is going to continue to rise. But how is it going to unfold? Is it going to become quite scattered and spread out? And likely in some case, in, in some form, that will be true. But are there things that we can do to help keep the core ingredients of historical success as present as possible, as far and as far reaching as possible? I think that's going to require work at this point because the community's gotten big enough that it's not just going to happen by itself. I agree with that, and it's intentional. I, I think the other piece of that, which is super exciting, but there's so much work to do, which is this uh, expanding number of people who want to get engaged in our ecosystem. We need to continue to be very intentional about changing what that group of people looks like, i.e., it's still shocking to me that we have such a small number of females in our ecosystem. We have so few people of color and we need to continue to figure out how to expand that. And, and like I said, it's not from a standpoint of, you know, of charity. I don't want to use that word. I believe that bringing people in with diverse opinions makes you better investors. It will expand the universe of companies that we can see. It expands the skill sets in our industry. And how do we keep that? How do we keep that moving? Because we still have a lot of work to do there as an industry. It's a real challenge. We have to figure out how to break. We have to figure out whatever barriers are out there that exist for that. We have to figure out how to do that because there are companies out there that these, these potential searchers and CEOs would be great running they and they'll bring great knowledge and points of view to all the stuff that we're doing every day yeah i, I agree and i think just to put uh, a little bit of encouragement on that you know <laughs> six or seven years ago i think this was a really big issue in the sense that it was essentially a white male predominantly driven model in the last three years over half of the entrepreneurs that Pacific Lake has backed are non-white males. They are women or people of color. And that's pretty unbelievable, certainly compared to where we were six or seven years ago. It's an enormous amount of change. And I bring that up intentionally because I think one of the ways that we solve the problem, which is still a big challenge that Commissioner alluded to, is awareness of what the reality is today. And we do that by showing the next generation of potential searchers that, hey, the generation ahead of them looks different, physically looks different. That's a good thing. The next generation of CEOs is starting to look different. That's a good thing. The composition of the investors out there in the community today, both from a senior level down to a junior level, looks different. And I believe it in a lot of ways almost could be that simple. It's just showing that this is now a much more broad and diverse community and as welcoming to all folks that are interested in entrepreneurship through acquisition. And for those that are coming up that are younger, to be able to look up ahead of them and see folks that look like them that are doing this, that are searching, that are running companies or investing in companies, I think is an enormous boost to their confidence and say, well, they did it. I can do it too. You know, what was interesting, Alex, was you asked at the beginning kind of what attracted us to the space. 
And, you know, when I first looked at search funds, you know, I was attracted to, you know, I love investing. It's kind of what I've been doing all of my life and helping build companies. I love the entrepreneurial energy out there. I also love the fact that, you know, you can make pretty good money. Let's not dismiss that, that the returns in our asset class have been pretty extraordinary and they continue to be. So it is an attractive asset class to invest your money. The big surprise for me, and it was was just how collaborative this community is. I have not been around. I've been in private equity. I've been a little in venture capital. I've been in other. This is like off the charts as far as, and it's the nature of what we do because not one of us controls a company, right? We all partner together on multiple deals. Coley, Pacific Lake and Trilogy are in tens of deals together. So we we're kind of forced to work together on things, but we actually enjoy working together on things. And that was kind of the biggest positive surprise once I got into this space was just how accommodating and inviting and collaborative this community is. And so, so, and I think to Coley's point, going back to, you know, it is open to anybody to participate in this community, whether, whatever, no matter what look you look like or what background you have. The key is, is you gotta really, really want to work with small businesses and have an entrepreneurial spirit. It's not, it can't be that McKinsey isn't hiring this year. So I think I'll go do a search fund or I couldn't, you know, I really don't want to go to Goldman back there or I didn't like this. So maybe I'll dabble. You have to have a real passion because the people, your investors have a real passion for wanting to work with people that have that. And if you don't, we'll pick it up pretty quickly and it's just not going to be a good equation. So you really got to want to do what we do here. And it's, and think of it not as a job, but as a journey and, and, and a calling. I mean, I don't want to sound so, but it has to be a calling that this is what I want to do because that's why we're doing it. We could all go do different things, but we have focused on this space because of the impact that we're having and what we get out of working in the, with these companies and with these entrepreneurs. That's a perfect place to close. Mitch and Coley, thank you both so much for sharing your time for the final episode of our launch series this year. Really appreciate you sharing your time and I've enjoyed getting to know you both over the last couple of years. So thank you again. Thanks for doing this, Alex. I think it's been a great service to the community having these, these podcasts. Great, great job. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts in our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com. 